There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, something a bit different. And now for something completely different. I'm not actually starting with a specific bit of pop culture. Instead, I'm going to show you some of the tropes and some of the phrases that you've learned through pop culture and now get thrown around as facts and give you an opportunity to come up with the real facts account of them, or the reality of situations being not as simple as they make out in the movies. So you could say that this time round, if you listen to this and use some of the little tips and tricks I'm going to show to you, is going to make you very slightly, just a little bit, cleverer. Let's get on with things then. I'll start with one that specifically isn't historic, but this is a great example of one that has been around for so long, it's now been seen as perceived wisdom. That there are certain chemicals and things like that that can help unleash and, and harness all this unused part of your brain because you only use 10% of your brain power. Yes, I'm pretty sure you've heard that one. We only use 10% of our brain. And, like a lot of these things, there's a kernel of truth to what they're saying. In essence, if you put somebody in a CAT scan and start sort of scanning their brain as they're sort of talking or doing something or interacting with a thing, then you will see that at any given point, about, give or take, 10% of your brain is firing at that point. But there's a very good reason for that. If, for example, you're sitting down watching TV then the bits of your brain that do things like walking, for example, won't be used. And the brain is a fascinating thing. For starters, and I, I do love these next two facts, is the brain is the only internal organ on planet Earth that has named itself. Because where did we come up with the word brain? By using our brains. The second fact around the brain is that every time we talk about the complexities of the brain, and there's a great line, and it, it is true, that if our brain was simple enough for us to actually understand it and understand exactly what bit does what, then we'd be too dumb to be able to understand that brain. But every time we talk about how amazingly complex the brain is, that's in essence our brain showing off. I could finish now. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that those two facts alone 
will keep you going for a while and indeed you can feel free to drop that one into a conversation and you'll get sort of minds blown everywhere however back to this whole 10 percent malarkey well this seems to have been and look working out exactly who said what first can be incredibly hard there are lots of websites with like you know quotes on them and some of them are better than others but the problem is that you get things where it's been attributed to this person but that's not the same thing that that person definitely definitely said it also particularly when we go back more than sort of 200 years it might have been written by a biographer who said that this person said it but it's more likely actually to have been the biographer who put in that pithy little comment what do i mean by all this well ultimately this 10 percent thing seems to have been cropping up about the same time as you got like the 60s counterculture and things like lsd oh it's going to open up your mind and all this kind of stuff the reality is, yes, you only use only 10% at any given point, but that's for very good reasons, because you don't want, for example, your walking part of your brain to be firing off and doing the walking while you're, let's say, sleeping, because that would be sleepwalking, and that's not generally seen a good thing. Many years ago, I had a girlfriend who was in the medical profession, I love flicking through some of her books and sort of talking to her about various things that she'd learnt, and it seems to me that Pretty much everything that you could think of that could go wrong with a human body has at some point, and there is a medical name for it. Now, what happens if your brain does start firing off more than 10%? If some bits of your brain are kind of permanently switched on for a few days, almost against your will, is that possible? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And there's a name for it, and there's a name that you know about this. And the reality is, as I just pointed out, you don't want bits of your brain just switched on kind of against your will or for no good reason. Because that's what a stroke is. That's a part of like intense activity in the brain which shouldn't be happening then and there. Strokes are incredibly damaging and debilitating. I've had members of my family have strokes. You can die from them in certain situations, but even if you don't, you're just simply not the same person after a stroke because your brain is now damaged in some way. It can lead to speech impediments. Sometimes people become completely mute. Some people might be unable to walk again. Now, for the record, their legs work fine, but because that part of their brain has, in essence, burnt out, that's what can happen there. So please don't use more than 10% of your brain at any given point. But that is just one example where you're sitting there going, oh, I'm pretty sure I'd heard that. I'm pretty sure that's a fact. And it's just because it's been repeated so many times in movies and TV that it's now become a bit of pop culture perceived wisdom. Similar to this, we have the phrase, a number of these are going to be phrases. We've learnt from history that we've never learnt from history. Or... There's a sort of the other one, I think it's attributed to Karl Marx about history repeats itself, first time as a tragedy, the second time as a comedy, or whatever. But the point is, there's this idea of, of the cyclical nature of history, and it just doesn't stack up. I've had this said to me by some Americans, going, ah, you know, we just, we just didn't learn from the history. The way we beat you Brits in the American Revolution is we were fighting guerrilla war against this great imperial power. And then, you know, 150 years later, there we were in the jungles of Vietnam and we were the imperial power and being beaten by this guerrilla force. Now, that sounds great on paper. And it's a little bit of pathos from Americans understanding that they don't have this ineffable right to win every war. But 
And here's some good news, guys. Those two wars were won and lost for very, very different reasons. And it's actually a bit of a myth to think of the American War of Independence as largely a guerrilla war against conventional war. Most of the battles were conventional affairs. Most of those, funnily enough, were won by the British. But this wasn't just British and Americans fighting on separate sides. There were some battles where both sides were 100% American colonists. Just some of them were loyal to the crown in inverted collars. And there are similarities. America would have lost the American War of Revolution had they not had external resources, i.e. the French backing them. In the case of Vietnam, the Viet Cong and, and NVA needed Soviet weapons and equipment and stuff from China as well. And if you like, this is the point. If you're going to water it down so much to the point that you can lose a war if the other guys get more resources... Well, now we're at a point of being so vague that it's not really history anymore. It's, it's just a sort of generic opinion. It's a bit of common sense, quite frankly. So that doesn't really work. And other things as well, when people start throwing in stuff about England fought France for a thousand years. You know, yes, vaguely, yes. Of course, there are periods of peace in that as well. What do we ever learn from that? Well, okay, you know, just, just very broad brushstrokes here, people. But the reason why we started fighting with the French was because of 1066 Battle of Hastings, when William, Duke of Normandy, i.e. he's got lands in France, became King of England. And now you basically, from that point onwards, for centuries, you have kings of England who also have lands in France, which leads to a fight with the French king for various reasons. But then that changed in the 1300s. You got the start of what's known as the Hundred Years' War. It was no such thing. But anyway, but the, the, the tone had changed. Now you've got the English king saying, not unreasonably, you know what, we're so intermarried into the French line. Why don't we become kings of France? We're pretty good at running countries. And the French kings, particularly in that period, were rubbish at running France. But that's a very different reason to the fact that, you know, let's fight over Normandy. After that... At the end of the Hundred Years' War, basically, at its peak, England ruled about half of France, but not as a king, but like as Count of Anjou and Duke of Normandy and things like that. But then after the Hundred Years' War, the only thing they've got left is Calais. That's it. One city, obviously very, very near England, and that was lost in the reign of Mary I, about a hundred years after that. And the point is that then, from that point onwards, you've got England fighting France because it's part of just the whole network of alliances that you get in Europe. Again, for a very different reason, like fighting over the crown. And then by the time we get into the 1700s, we've then got a fight as France and England are trying to spread their empires across the world, which is, again, a very different reason to fight wars. If it happened to have been Germany, now this is one of the weird things, Germany obviously only existed as a unified country in the 19th century, but if they had unified earlier and decided to become the big European power across the globe, then it would have been England and Germany fighting, or it would have been France and Germany fighting if England hadn't got off their bottoms and started going to Canada, etc. So you get the idea that the fact is that, you know, we never learnt from history. Yes, we absolutely have. And if you like, this brings me on to my next topic, because another thing that you've never learnt from history, apparently, is Russia. And why did Hitler invade Russia it was obvious that he was doomed from the start. Just look at Napoleon. Well, those two campaigns, when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, he did pull together what was called the Grand Armée. It was give or take. It was about half a million men. It had loads of resources. And, you know, on paper, Operation Barbarossa by Hitler in World War II, the invasion of the Soviet Union, more on that in a moment, was similarly a massive army 
But after that, they're completely different. You know, Napoleon, age of horse, Hitler, age of mechanized warfare, blitzkrieg and things like that. And Hitler was well aware of what happened with Napoleon and therefore he made a whole bunch of different mistakes. But this leads me on to the next point of this particular Let's Make You a Little Bit Smarter podcast is how things just get mangled, albeit on YouTube or in movies, etc. And particularly when we start talking about Russia. Now, Russia is a complicated story. Very briefly, going back to the fact that, oh, you know, nobody's ever conquered Russia. Well, there's one group that absolutely annihilated Russia multiple times. They're called the Mongols. So you then get people saying, oh, well, it only counts, you know, you can't beat Russia if you're coming from the West. Why is the West harder than the East? The Mongols did it on horses. Hitler had panzer tanks, okay? You know, it's whole other reasons why these people won and lost. So, bear with me on this one. The Vikings went all over the place, and they sometimes went down major rivers, and they didn't just destroy, sometimes they set up trading posts, and they set up this trading post on this river, and this trading post became known as Kiev. Kiev was actually founded by the Vikings. What's this got to do with Russia, Gem? Kiev is the capital city of Ukraine. Well, when the Mongols came smashing into what we now call Russia and Ukraine, they captured everything and they just found Kiev. An unnecessary distraction. It kind of wasn't on the way. Like, right, okay, you Rus people, we're going to give you another place to set up. You go sort of set up over there. And that new place, which they told them to set up, is called Moscow. So there you go. Kiev, founded by the Vikings. Moscow, not so much founded by the Mongols, but made to be created by the Mongols. So that shows you how powerful the Mongols were, and, and for centuries, literally centuries, the princes of Moscow, because they weren't Tsars yet, but the princes of Moscow, which only held a little bit of territory around Moscow, were absolutely beholden. They were vassal state beholden to the Mongols. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole of Russian history, don't you worry. But Russia started expanding, particularly under the likes of the greats, that will be Peter and Catherine, and they took away bits of the Ottoman Empire, and Places like Siberia had never been part of the Russian territories until they captured it only a couple of centuries ago. They expanded everywhere, and places like Ukraine, which had been a separate state, was then sort of absorbed into Russia and the like the Tsarist Russia Imperial Empire. And then there were sort of things sort of collapsed, obviously, during World War One, and you get the foundation or re-emergence of some of these other countries, like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Georgia and Mongolia. And if you think Georgia isn't very big, no, but have a look at how large Kazakhstan is on a map. It is colossal. You know, if you want to slap together France, Portugal, and Spain, you still haven't filled in Kazakhstan. It may be a country that's fairly isolated. It may be one that you've only vaguely heard of, probably from comedian Borat-type stuff, Sasha Baron Cohen. But the point is, it's huge with massive national reserves. And then you get places like Mongolia, which has its own proud history and culture. Then you get the Russian Revolution, and they basically capture lots of these countries that are independent. Belarusia, Georgia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Mongolia, and so on and so forth. In World War II, Russia didn't fight World War II. Andrew Davies did this brilliant book called Europe at War. It's got lots of stats in it, and basically it's really breaking down 
your perceived knowledge of World War II. It's fascinating. And what he points out is because the losses of the Red Army were so great that at the beginning, it, you could argue it was largely Slavic Russians. I mean, you're going to have to put in Ukrainians into that as well. But so Slavic peoples were doing a lot of the fighting. But by 1945, 49% of the Red Army was ethnically non-Slavic. So it would have been Mongols and Tajiks and Uzbeks and Tatars and people like that, okay? And if you're going, well, 49%, still 51% Russian then, isn't it? Except Belarusia and Ukraine and places like that. The Red Army in 1945 was the single largest army on planet Earth. So there were more ethnic non-Russians fighting in the Soviet army than there were in Brits fighting in the whole of the British army by that stage. And so we need to sort of point out that the Soviet Union is different to Russia, and this all kind of gets mixed up, but we make the same mistake with the Romans. We tend to think, well, maybe they were Roman or at least Italian, and that's not the case. Any empire is going to pick the resources it's got and use them to their advantages. For example, you know, the gladius, the, the famous weapon, which is where we get the gladiator from, the sort of standard weapon of the Roman legions for many centuries, the short sword, is actually from Spain. So they basically fought Spaniards and went, oh, those are really effective swords. Let's use them, incorporate them. There were a number of peoples in what we now call the Middle East who were renowned archers. So they became the archers of the Roman legions. Roman in inverted commas. Wales was conquered by the Romans. And they were known for their cavalry and horses. So funnily enough, we'll use them. So when you talk about Roman armies conquering X, it would have been polyglot, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, all these different people beholden to the Roman Empire fighting and helping it expand. And the last empire, I'm going to say, is the Ottoman Empire. Now, people quite often say Turk equals Ottoman and Ottoman equals Turk, and it's absolutely not that way. The foundation of the Ottoman Empire was under Osman, some kind of Ottoman, which is where you get the term Ottoman, because the entire, this same family, so father, son, father, son, few uncles thrown in, but basically it's the same family all the way from a foundation around about 1300 to dissolution in the 1920s people. There are still people who were born under the Ottoman flag. But like any other empire, you had Bulgarians in there and Serbs in there. And yes, people like the Georgians again as well and Jews. The Ottoman Empire is polyglot. But you can understand why today Russia wants to own everything that's Soviet Union and forgetting conveniently all these other places. And Turkey today is the only country that seems to like the Ottoman Empire and therefore uses the term Turk. But no, it is also worth pointing out that virtually every single sultan was the son of a slave girl. So daddy was originally Turkish, but mummy was probably Ukrainian or Bulgarian. You know, she would have been a Christian girl, so therefore certainly not Turkish and not an Arab or a Syrian either. You know, if you keep going that down the centuries, by the time you get to the 1800s, probably the person listening to this right now is more Turkish in inverted commas than the supposed Turkish sultan of the Ottoman court. So yes, it is interesting thinking that the most powerful person in this massive empire had a slave for a mother. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about the good old days, shall we? You see... It is tempting that when you read certain books or stories that you start getting misty-eyed about previous eras. And it is worth pointing out that it's absolutely fair that there is a horrific bias in history. Quite often in the past, particularly going back like 500 years, people only talked about, in inverted commas, the important people or the rich people or the powerful people. Okay? So therefore, the peasants don't get talked a lot about. And the vast majority of our ancestors were indeed peasants of some description or other. And their lives were horrible. You know, people look at things like, you know, the average life expectancy. Now, on that point, and sort of this is where we start with, there's no such thing as the good old days, is when we start talking about how, you know, the average life expectancy was sort of 45 in the Middle Ages, Part of that is skewed because this is, of course, an average. Part of that is skewed by the staggeringly high infant mortality rate and, indeed, the sort of guessed-for rate of about 10% of women dying in childbirth. So if you're a healthy woman aged about, let's say, 20, dying in childbirth, and let's say this child dies as well, then that sort of counters the 65-year-old guy who's sitting there, you know, the grandfather of this family, mourning the loss of his daughter and his sort of grandchild, whatever it may be, and then that's how you end up with an average life expectancy of 45. The reality is, if you lived past your childhood, and really it was sort of about the age of five and six, by then the child is robust enough to be considered they're probably going to make it, although anything can happen at any time, then chances are you probably were going to live to 60, 65, mere barring rampaging hordes of insert name of dangerous group here. And that's sort of the thing that a lot of people don't understand. Families were huge. I find it fascinating that my Turkish grandfather was one of eight children, and my grandfather was the only one that made it to adulthood. That's seven children who died. Look, I see I'm talking about sort of deconstructing myths. I have read this in only one place, I cannot verify this, and this sounds so weird and so counter to how we run society now, I find it hard to believe. So please, if anybody can find me sort of further corroboratory proof on this. But apparently, at least in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, things were so grim that children generally weren't named until the age of five. Now, I find that hard to do, but certainly... In grinding poverty where your children are highly likely to die in early age, maybe it's best to not make too much of an attachment to them. I know this sounds utterly bizarre and harsh, but this is the reality. Up until World War II, basically, with the invention of penicillin, which basically coincided roughly with World War II as the first mass using of it, bacteria and infection was more likely to get you than anything else. So all these battles in the past, you get the amount of dead in the battles, but then you could well die of surgery afterwards or try and avoid surgery because you know that might well kill you in the process. You know, just hacking legs off as quickly as possible so you don't die of shock 
means that, of course, you've got dirty surgical instruments and things like that. Indeed, Victorian doctors would often walk around with blood spattered on their aprons to show that they were a veteran. But, of course, nowadays we know that was simply spreading infection. Some other examples of the good old days when people start looking misty-eyed at it is, I've already talked a little bit about healthcare there, but these outbreaks of illness, you know, there was no idea. The concept of microbiology Yes, there were a couple of very clever Arab scholars saying that there may be illnesses, seeds of evil that could infect people that were smaller even than a grain of rice. That's a good idea, and they're actually on the right process to get to viruses, but the whole concept of these invisible, super tiny organisms that could kill us really has only been around for, give or take, 150 years. And so, therefore, all you have to do is go back 150 years and you could die from a cut in your hand off a rusty nail, as you were just as easy to die in the Battle of Waterloo or something like that. So the good old days, healthcare's going to kill you, diseases out of nowhere could kill you, infections could kill you. Famines actually weren't quite as common as you think. Quite often nowadays when you get these massive horrific famines that kill so many people, this is usually down to mass mismanagement. Whereas, yes, there were bad harvests and things like that, but actual sort of like full-on famine was pretty rare in like the medieval times because there was massive agricultural innovation going on. So you just kept doing it the good old way. And the good old way worked, let's say, nine times out of ten. The last thing to say on good old days is, let's face it, when you look at how much women are struggling even today to get equal pay and the Me Too movement and other things eroding their freedoms and wills and freedom of expression... Well, it's barely been a hundred years in most Western countries that women could even vote, okay? You know, a hundred years or so ago, women were still sort of chattels and, you know, property of their husbands. And it was only in the 1990s in Britain that a husband could legally be considered to have raped his wife because surely you're, it's all consensual. You're married and, oh my goodness, you know, so yeah. If you're a woman in any way talking about the good old days, nope, I'm not saying today's perfect. I'm sure today is pretty lousy for you. But sadly, and I don't want to depress you too much, today is the single best day in history that we've had so far. There is no golden era, okay? And on that point, no golden era, there was no renaissance. How on earth could I say that? I'm not saying that the Sistine Chapel doesn't exist, that Leonardo da Vinci wasn't an amazing artist. He absolutely was. But when people start talking about the Renaissance, it gets very hazy very quickly. People sort of say, oh, well, what triggered the Renaissance was 1453, the fall of Constantinople, and all this great wisdom came from that city into Italy. Except there are various bits of the Renaissance, early Renaissance, that exist before 1453. Um, there's some sort of classic paintings, things showing things like perspective, some amazing brasswork, which is very much influenced by ancient classical sculpture. Some of these things existed way before 1453, so that's not the trigger point. Also, if you look at late Byzantine art, it's not very good. So how these not very good artists suddenly inspired Leonardo da Vinci doesn't work at all. So when did it start or when did it stop is also the other fair point because when people start saying, oh, it was this explosion of humanism and, well, you know, all these new concepts of learning. Really? 1453 marks the fall of Constantinople and marks the end of the Hundred Years' War, okay? That's when sort of peace was finally signed between France and England. And um, really what changed? 
because just in a couple of decades later, you've then got what the era in England, for example, what's known as the War of the Roses. The French king didn't suddenly, after looking at the Mona Lisa, didn't suddenly start creating democracy or something like that. In no point in Europe, in this Renaissance era, do you get a massive political change, massive social change. What you get is some amazing art seen by some very privileged, very rich people that if you were sitting in Oxford, you wouldn't have seen. If you were sitting in Friedrichsburg in Germany, you wouldn't have seen. 99.999% of Europe's population had no idea who Michelangelo was or what all these great like, writings were, you know, Machiavelli, etc. But yes, these things are beautiful, but no, no such thing as a renaissance in any meaningful historical sense. As an art movement, yeah. But there you go. So, <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm, I'm sort of a, expelling a lot of bile here, and I hope you're enjoying this at the same time. So, then we get to some sort of Twitter arguments or sort of some glib comments that you get online where people say, and here are my two most annoying statements, X is the worst in history and we're living in a police state. More on police states in a moment, but X is the worst in history. You have every right into like social media and free press to be angry at your leaders or to be angry at an individual in the public eye. But if you say they're the worst in history, I always want to know, well, name me the bottom five then. In the whole of history, please. I had literally had this argument and somebody went, yeah, you're right, Jim. Well, I was talking about how George Washington was a very average general. He's not one of the greatest generals in world history. <gasps> How can you say that, Jim? He won the American War of Independence against this great British empire. It's like, well, he lost more battles than he won. And yet he did enough, to be clear. I didn't say he's a terrible general. I said he's just not one of the greatest generals in all of history. And I had one guy online saying, I take your point. He did lose lots of battles and, you know, he did do enough. I wasn't denigrating him. But he then said, but I can't think of another general who did more, who gained more with less. And I then turned around and threw out a few examples. For example, Genghis Khan, who literally started from nothing. He was virtually an orphan. His new wife had been stolen by another tribe. And that's all he had. He had a few followers around him. And yet by the time he died, he'd carved a massive empire. And the Mongols, you cannot understand the 13th century world history without understanding the Mongols. They impacted everywhere from Poland to Japan. And no other culture had that kind of impact in the 13th century. And that's all thanks to Genghis Khan. So, yeah, he did more with less than George Washington did. OK, my point is this. If, if you start saying X is the worst in history, you, know, you say worst in living memory, worst in 10 years. OK, fair enough. But usually when you start looking in all of history, you know, you're going to find. Well, here's this. I've had a few people being very angry, and a few historians even being very angry at the Conservative Party in 2019, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, etc. And I, I get it. I absolutely get it. You have every reason to be angry and disappointed and, you know, thinking them as pathetic, but then turning around saying they're the single worst party or prime ministers in history, it's like, okay, but you now can go back 300 years. How about Lord Liverpool? You know, the Prime Minister who allowed the Peterloo Massacre in 1819 to happen and then wanted to crack down just as hard on other naysayers in allegedly a free speech democratic to what you as limited as you could be in the early 1800s. You know, yeah, that's absolutely terrible and awful. You've got other Prime Ministers who allowed, well, 
the Irish potato famine wasn't created by the English. That was just a potato blight. That's just bad luck. But the prime ministers didn't do anything to help the Irish peasants. And hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, died because of that. And huge amounts of the Irish population then fled to America because even though the crossing of Atlantic is terrifying, it was better than hanging around in Ireland, okay? How about Neville Chamberlain, just about in living history? You know, he managed to allow Hitler to get away with stuff. So, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to come up with somebody who is worse than who you're angry with right now. Now, like I say, you have every reason to be angry with them, but I just hate the throwaway line, worse in history. So, then we come on to living in a police state. This one really annoys me, and it's used a lot by students, although I have heard it from a few people my age. Harsh laws come in, or laws that could or be a slippery slope to something else, and, you know, I... Again, you have every reason to distrust these things. You have every reason to be angry. But just because you disagree with the current political party in power, or the current president, or whatever, doesn't mean they are automatically a dictator and absolutely horrible. And the horrible reality is this. You don't have to start looking far to see what actually happens in a police state. You know, there are people in Cuba, I've met Cubans who sort of have told me this, multiple ones from different sources, saying, you know, yes, we've got a great healthcare system. We have no freedom of press. The press is all run by the government who only tells us the things they want us to know. We do our best to try and find other information. But you have to be careful who you say things to because people are listening. And they don't walk around with armbands on. It could be a member of your family. It could be the lovely little old lady who lives above you. And if you say the wrong thing, well, you know, in Cuba, you're not going to be shot or you know, locked up, but you could be denigrated. You might find that you don't get that job you're looking for or, or something like that. And I'm so not going to say who they are or which countries we're talking about. But literally, I know people who, who have basically said, whatever you do, don't talk to me about politics on the phone. You never know who's listening. So the point is this. If you can say, we're living in a police state, and you don't get carted away, no, you're not. And it's denigrating the people who really have been living in police states, where freedom of speech and erosion of personal rights are a real thing happening right now and have happened plenty of times in past history. So that's horrible. And a little bit linked to that is war crimes. If you want to argue that war is a crime, I hear you. I get you on that. But war crimes are basically about numbers and volume. If one person is killed, that is called murder. It's not a war crime. And yet we're now at the point where we want to say that two people being killed is a war crime. It's like, no, the bombing of Dresden was a war crime. The Holocaust was a war crime. What happened in Rwanda or Cambodia are war crimes because you just need a certain number of people. There has to be a certain momentum to the horror for it to be a war crime. And indeed, stubbing your toe or whatever is not a war crime. Just grow up, okay? It is interesting to note that nowadays sieges are defined as a war crime because it creates unnecessary suffering to civilians, just disproportionately to civilians. And yet sieges have been a standard tactic since the beginning of history. So I'm not sure that something makes every general in history a war criminal, but you could argue that, and some people do, and I think you're missing that. Which leads me very quickly onto the next bit. Stop judging people with current day morals. Why are today's morals instantly better than all other morals? We don't know that. Maybe in 200 years time, we'll realize that these morals are wrong and these new morals are right. Best way to judge somebody is what did everybody else think of them in that time? If everybody thought that ruler was harsh and evil and cruel in that time, then they were.
Okay. Which brings me on to, I'm sort of coming, heading, galloping towards the end. Two more, which is, these are less to do with opinion pieces and stupid things people say on Twitter. These are ones where you can really look smart, and they're to do with armour and castles, and I'll definitely finish here because you can't argue any politics about these things. So, when I say knight in shining armour, have you got that image in your head? You know, that full-faced helmet, that breastplate and all that kind of stuff? That is from a very particular era. Now, it's very much at the end of the knightly era, sort of the very late 1400s, early 1500s, when gunpowder starts becoming more of a big deal. But that is not how most knights dress. Most knights would be covered in a halberd, a suit of mail armour. Now, I did deliberately didn't use the word chainmail there because historians get very upset about that. And it's, it's fair, because if you look at a chain, that's just a link of big bits of metal smashed together. If you look at that male armour, I'll call it chain mail for the sake of it, if you look at chain mail armour, it's not just one series of links, it's a whole entire beautiful intricate mesh of these hoops bound together multiple times. It's, you know, calling it chain mail is basically insulting its skill, okay? But that, but that sort of covering yourself head to foot in chain mail, Jem said in inverted commas, usually with some gambeson, a kind of padded jacket underneath it stops blunt force trauma, that's how most knights operated. This evolution of armour happened over about a century and a half, and so no, you didn't have people on the first crusade dripping in plate armour. The other thing that's worth pointing out is by and large this stuff was made to order for this individual, so when people say well, I mean, now it's been proved that Richard III was indeed a hunchback, but there were queries about that going, how could he possibly be a hunchback? How could he ever fit in armour? Well, the answer to that is it's made bespoke, so if you've got a curved spine, they basically build the armour around that, so you've got curved armour, okay? So, that's armour, it changed all the time, that, that stuff is very late, and actually we have very little early armour. Almost all the armour, like if you see something like Henry VIII's armour, that was kind of anachronistic even of its age. Very few people wore full-plate armour in the time of Henry VIII, but he looked awesome, so yeah, they just gave it to him. But yes, most armours never look like that, and it's the same thing with castles. If you ever see a movie, people are wandering around this castle, well, castles are basically a fossilised arms race. The very first ones, a good place to go is the Tower of London, if you want to see, or if you want to look at photo, okay? The very first castles, for starters, castles came to England, they were earlier in Europe, castles came to England with 1066 and then William the Conqueror. And they're basically a fortified home for a lord. So if you have to fortify your home, that means something bad's happened. Now, people might turn around and go, hang on, Maiden Castle. Oh, Maiden Castle predates 1066. Yes, it does, but it's an Iron Age hill fort. And it's a hill fort. It's a very different structure. It's also massive compared to the size of a castle. Most castles are relatively small because you want a small garrison. It's somebody's homes. So they don't want to have a huge house, really. Anytime you see a castle with big windows, those are being knocked through. Windows are rubbish for defence. Arrow slits rule, okay? But if you look at the Tower of London, the very first castles were, were wooden, but you can burn those down. They rot over time as well. So the White Tower, the central tower, built in the 1080s, is basically a fossilised Motton Bailey. It's a big tower that's been turned into stone, okay? I mean, it's, it's actually built as stone. And that would have done the trick in the 1080s, but then the next wall around it, it was in the 1180s, created by Henry the uh, Henry the Second and Richard the Lionheart, and that's called a curtain wall. And so those came later, because we now want defence in depth, and all curtain walls are lower than the central tower, so you can shoot from the tower at the bad guys attacking you, or you can shoot from the wall attacking you, and even if they capture the outer wall, well, there's no back to it, so we are still in the tower, still shooting you who are below us with no protection, so 
there's kind of like these kill zones. The point of a castle is it's like a, a multiplier. There's no such thing as an impregnable castle. It will be starved out eventually. They've got enough people, they will eventually storm it. But if you can hold out long enough till the relief army turns up, then you save the day. That's the point of a castle, really. And so to go back to the Tower of London, and then it's got a second outer wall that was built again about 100 years after that. So middle one, central tower, 1080s. Second line of defense, first curtain wall, 1180s. And then outer curtain wall, 1280s. Now, all this stuff has been adapted over the centuries, and that's the point, as it were. Every time the attackers came up with a new way to attack, the defenders created a new way to defend, and then the attackers found a way around that. And so you get this, this is why it's an arms race. No castle, or almost no castle, was built as you see it now. And so if you've got something like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, or even something like reenactment of 1066, and you've got people sitting in castles, the chances is that castle didn't look anything like that in that time. And it is worth pointing out that we've got Macbeth, where Macbeth has a castle. Macbeth was actually contemporary to, round about the era of the Battle of Hastings. Macbeth was a real king of Scotland, and no, he never had an actual castle. So this stuff about how this is Macbeth's castle, and this is where he ruled, that was built much, much later. Castles are actually, perhaps in some cases, more recent than you think, and they certainly didn't look that way when they actually had that siege, which you're learning about as you're standing there with the tour guide from the National Trust. Although, if they're a good tour guide, they will be pointing this out to you at this time. But, funnily enough, Hollywood location scouts don't care. They just find a cool-looking castle, and then it might be wrong by 200 years. And if you'll go turn around to me and say, Oh, Jem, come on, don't, don't get too bent out of shape. It's still medieval, isn't it? Okay, well, a gun's a gun. Why don't we have something about the Battle of Waterloo using 200-year-later technology where everybody is holding M16s or AK-47s? Yeah, looks stupid, doesn't it? So, there we go. I mean, giving you things that you can be pedantic about, things where you can throw in and go, well, actually, I hope you've enjoyed this particular podcast. It's been a lot of fun for me to sort of do something a bit different and also share some of the things that have frustrated me and chance for you guys to spread the best practice, as it were. More good fun stuff coming up soon. <laughs> <laughs>